Welcome to this Uvula audio production of Smuggler's Reef by John Blaine. Volume 2, Chapter 3 The Red-Headed Kelsos The Spindrift motor launch rolled gently in the offshore swell of the New Jersey coast as it slid by off the starboard beam. Behind the wheel, Rick steered easily, following the shoreline. In the aft cockpit, Scotty prepared hand lines for the fishing they planned to do to keep up appearances. Their decision to revisit Smuggler's Reef had been made on the spur of the moment. The case of the wrecked trawler was none of their business, and Rick had learned in the past that it was a good idea to keep his nose out of things that didn't concern him. But he could no more resist a mystery than he could resist a piece of Mrs. Brandt's best chocolate cake. He watched the shoreline as the launch sped along and tried to assure himself that a little look around wasn't really sticking his nose into the case. After all, it wouldn't hurt to satisfy his curiosity, would it? Scotty came forward and joined him. All set, you ought to find some fish right off the tip of the reef, if you intend to do any fishing, that is. Of course we'll fish, Rick said. What else did we come here for? Nothing, Scotty agreed. This is a fishing expedition in the true sense of the word. Rick looked at his pal suspiciously. What exactly is behind that remark? Scotty chuckled. Are you fooling yourself, or are you trying to fool me? Rick had a laugh, too. All right, let's admit it. We're so used to excitement that we have to go fishing for it if none comes our way. But seriously, Scotty, this is none of our business. The local officials can handle it without any help from us. Maybe we shouldn't get involved. Scotty leaned back against the seat and grinned lazily. You think you could take your own advice? I think so, Rick said, with his fingers obviously crossed. Scotty pointed to a low line ahead. There's the reef. See the light on the tip? Yeah, you couldn't very well miss it, Rick said. The light was painted with red and white stripes and it stood out sharply against the sky. He gave Scotty a sidelong glance. What did you make out of all that talk last night? You think Captain Tyler really ran on the reef purposely? Scotty shook his head. He didn't strike me as a thief, and that's what he'd have to be to wreck his trawler on purpose. I liked his looks, too. Then Captain Mike said he didn't drink, so his statement that he was under the influence of liquor won't hold water either. So what's the answer? If we knew, would we be here? Scotty waved at the shore. How far does this stuff extend? The water ended in an almost solid wall of rushes and salt marsh growth that would be far above even a tall man's head if he stood at sea level. Now and then a small inlet appeared where the water flowed too rapidly for plant life to grow. There's about a mile of the stuff, Rick said. 
It stops at the reef. I'm not sure how wide it is, but I guess it averages a quarter of a mile. It's called Brendan's Marsh, after an old guy who got lost in it once. It was over a week before they found him. They were approaching the reef at a good clip. What do we do first? Scotty asked. Rick shrugged. He had no plan of action. I guess we just sort of wander around and wait for a bright idea to hit us? A lot of other people have the same idea, I think. Scotty nodded toward the reef. Rick saw a number of figures moving around the wreck of the trawler. I wonder who they are. Probably a lot of folk who are just curious, like the two in this boat. I wouldn't be surprised if the law was doing a little looking around by daylight, too. We'll soon see. Rick turned the launch inshore as they approached the reef. Let's tie up at the Creek House dock. Then we can walk down the reef and join the rest. Suits me fine. Rick rounded the corner of the salt marsh and steered the launch into the creek, reducing speed as he did so. On their right, the marsh stretched inland along the sluggish creek bank. On their left, the high old bulk of the creek house rose from a yard that was strewn with rubble and years of accumulation of weeds and litter. A hundred yards up the creek was the gray, rickety piling of the hotel dock. That's it, Rick said. Scotty went up to the bow and took the bow line, ready to drop it over a piling. Rick started a wide turn that would bring him into the dock and then cut the engine. The launch slowed as it lost momentum and drifted slowly into place perfectly. Hey! Get out of here! Coming from the hotel's side door in a dead run was a stocky young man of about their own age. He was between Rick and Scotty in height and had hair the color of a ripe carrot. Swinging from one arm was a rifle. Is that hair real or has he got a wig on? Scotty asked. Looks real to me, Rick returned. His forehead creased. The dock had never been considered private property, at least not since the hotel was abandoned. He waited to see what the redhead wanted. The boy ran down the loose wooden surface toward them. His face was red and angry. Get that boat out of here! Rick looked into a pair of furious eyes the color of seaweed set about a wide nose and a thin mouth. Why? he asked. This is private property. Cast off! Where's your sign? Scotty asked. The boy grinned unpleasantly. Don't need no sign. I got this. He patted the stock of his rifle. You plan to use that rifle? Scotty asked calmly. If I have to, now cast off those lines and get out! Rick's temper began to fray a little. You're using the wrong tone of voice, he said gently. You should say, I'm terribly sorry, fellows, but this is private property. Do you mind tying up somewhere else? Ask us nicely like that and we'll do it. The redhead half-lifted the rifle. Wise guy, eh? I warned you. Now cast off those lines and get out of here. He dropped his hand to the lever of the rifle as though to pump a cartridge into place. Scotty tensed and said softly, You get any ideas with that rifle, I'm going to climb up there and feed it to you breach first. Rick saw the color rise in the boy's face and the muscles in his throat tightened. Easy, Scotty, he said warningly. 
He knew, as Scotty did, that no normal person would wave a rifle at anyone for mere daytime accidental trespassing. But he had a hunch that the young carrot top would not react normally. Jimmy! The three of them looked up at the hotel as the hail came. A big man with red hair several shades darker than the boys was waving from the side door of the creek house. He walked toward them rapidly. It's okay, Pop. I told him to get out, Caratop called. As the man approached, Rick saw that there was a strong resemblance between the man and boy. Evidently, they were father and son. The man had the same thin lips and the same seaweed green eyes. His face was almost square. It was a tough face, Rick thought. The newcomer looked at his son and jerked his thumb toward the hotel. Okay, Jimmy, get into the house. The boy turned and walked off without a word. The man surveyed Rick and Scotty briefly. Don't mind Jimmy. He was probably rude. Sorry for it. But this is private property and I can't allow you to tie up here. He motioned to the high fence board along the front of the hotel. The fence ran down to the edge of the creek. Anywhere this side of the fence is private. Rick nodded. It didn't used to be. That's why we tied up here. I'm quite sorry, Mr. Kelso. I rented the place a few weeks ago. I haven't had time to get signs up yet. We'll shove off right away, Mr. Kelso. Sorry we intruded. It's okay. Rick started the engine and threw the launch into reverse and backed out. Scotty sat down beside him. How about that? Funny, Rick said. Didn't Captain Mike say a family named Kelso had taken the hotel because their little boy was sick and needed fresh air? That's what he said, Scotty affirmed. That couldn't have been the sick little boy. Nope, too old, and if he's sick, he's got trigger fever. I think he'd look like he'd like to take a shot at somebody, Rick said grimly. It would sure be an effective way of discouraging trespassers. Why do you suppose they crave privacy so much? Beats me, Rick said. We'll have to ask Captain Mike. Launch passed the edge of the creek house fence and came to a strip of sandy beach. The road ended a few feet from the beach. A number of cars were parked in the area, and along Smuggler's Reef were the occupants, most of them standing around the wreck. I'll run the launch in as far as I can get, Rick directed, and you can jump ashore with the anchor. Okay. Scotty went forward and took the small anchor from his lashings, making sure he had plenty of line. As Rick pushed the bow of the launch into the shallow water until it grated on the sand, Scotty jumped across the six feet of open water to the beach. Rick took the keys from the ignition and joined him. Together they pulled the launch in a foot or two more and dug the anchor into the sand. It would hold there until the tide changed. Well, let's go look at that wreck, Scotty said. Rick nodded. Afterwards, I think we'd better go look up Captain Mike. I have some questions I want to ask him. About what? Something he said last night about the Kelsos. They reached the old light tower and paused to examine it. Salt air had etched the steel of the frame badly. The tower was almost 40 feet high, about twice as tall as the present light. 
and its top had been a wooden platform where the light keeper had once stood to take care of the light. A rusty metal ladder led up one side of the tower to where the platform had been. Rick wondered why the authorities had abandoned the tower in favor of a smaller light at the very tip of the reef, and decided it probably was because having the warning light at the very point was more practical. That way a ship needed only to clear the light without worrying about how far away from the light it had to pass. Let's go, Scotty said. Nothing interesting about this relic. They joined the group of men at the wreck of the Sea Bell and saw the wreck was being inspected, probably by the insurance people. A question to one of the watchers affirmed the guess, and Rick asked, What do they expect to find? Search me. Scotty nudged Rick. We won't have to look far for Captain Mike. He's over there. The old man was seated on a rock, whittling a twig. Seemingly, he paid no attention to anything going on. Now and then, he looked out to sea, but mostly he paid attention to his whittling. Rick walked over, Scotty behind him. Morning, Captain Mike. Morning, boys. Do you remember us? Sure do. Where's the reporter, then? He's not with us. We came down to do a little fishing. Bright eyes twinkled at them. Fishing, eh? What kind of fishing? We thought we might get some blackfish at the end of the reef, Scotty replied. You might hit that, Captain Mike said. You might hit crabs off the end of Creek House Pier, too, if Red Kelso will let you try. Did you ask him? Rick grinned. Captain Mike might not seem to be paying attention, but evidently he didn't miss much. We didn't ask him, replied Rick. Maybe we didn't even see him. He knew Captain Mike could have seen the boat vanish up creek and return, but he wouldn't have been able to see past the fence. But you sure saw somebody, and it had to be Kelso, or that younger version of him. Why do they want so much privacy? Scotty demanded. Captain Mike ignored the question. You really got to be fishing gear in that launch. Handlines, Rick said. That's as good as anything. Now... I always say a man can't think proper in a mob like this. Too distracting. Let's go fishing and do some thinking. What do you say? Rick's glance met Scotty's. Captain Mike had his own way of doing things. And they had nothing to lose by humoring him. Let's go, Scotty said. As they passed the wreck, Rick stopped for a moment to look at it again. The air was even heavier than the night before with the reek of dead fish. They were scattered along the reef in shoals ten feet wide. By daylight he could see that the trawler was finished. She had broken her back and torn out a good part of her bottom. She must have really been making knots to hit it like that. Captain, exactly what was the weather like when Tom Tyler hit? Rick asked. Not bad. Visibility might have been less than real perfect, but it wouldn't have interfered with him seeing the light. Would it have interfered with him seeing the reef if the life had been out? I reckon it would have, until he was right on it anyway. Rick turned the information over in his mind. Were any other trawlers out last night? Plenty. The sea bell was first in, but the rest were right behind. The light was burning all right. I thought of that too, son. 
My name is Rick Brandt, and this is Don Scott. We call him Scotty. Do you both. I subscribe to the paper your friend writes for. Seen your pictures a couple of times. Didn't you just get back from somewhere? The South Pacific. Used to sail those waters. Reckon things have changed some. The war changed the islands, Scotty told him. Especially... He stopped suddenly and took Rick's arm. Look! The elder Kelso was standing in front of the launch. What do you suppose he's after? Rick asked. Before Scotty or Captain Mike could think up an answer, Kelso turned and walked back along the beach. There was a foot or two of space between the water of the creek and the hotel fence. The red-headed man slipped through it and vanished from sight. I bet he came out just to look the boat over, Scotty guessed. There's only one reason I can think of why I'd do that. He wanted to see if he could find out more about us. Well, unless he admired the launch and wanted a closer look at it, Rick asked. Captain Mike snorted. Red Kelso has got no eye for beauty, in boats at least. Then my guess must have been right, Scotty said. Right or wrong, I can't say as I like it, Captain Mike retorted. I wish you boys had talked to me before you decided to invade Salt Creek. Chapter 4 A Warning Captain Mike tested his line and then gave a sharp tug. He hauled rapidly and lifted a three-pound blackfish into the boat. Practically a minnow, he said. Did we come out here to fish or to talk? Rick asked. They were anchored a few hundred yards off the reef tip and had been for almost an hour. In that time, Captain Mike had made a good haul of four blackfishes, one flounder, and a porgy. Rick and Scotty had caught two blacks apiece. There was a definite twinkle in Captain Mike's eye. Came to talk. But the fish are biting too good. Better fish while the fishing's good. Time enough to talk later. Time enough for fishing later, you mean, Rick retorted. Hauling in blackfish isn't going to find out why the sea bell was wrecked. Got to that answer already, Captain Mike said. Rick and Scotty stared at him. You have? Rick asked incredulously. Stands to reason. Didn't you tell me you knew Mrs. Tyler was scared? Well, yeah, but... Well, Tom is scared, too. He wasn't until the sea bell was wrecked, but he sure is now. That's why he's sticking to that story of his instead of telling the truth. What is the truth? Scotty demanded. Don't know that. Yet. Reckon I'll find out, though. Only I'll need some help. Keen eyes surveyed the two young men. Rick worked his hand line absently. You mean you want us to help? Seems I've read about you boys solving a mystery or two, haven't I? Well, we've had a couple of lucky breaks, Scotty said. We're not real detectives. Captain Mike tried his line and muttered, Feels like a cutter is stealing my bait. Well, boys, I wouldn't be surprised none if a little luck like yours is what we need. Can't pretend, though, that you might not be walking right into something you wouldn't like. Anything that scares Tom Tyler is something anyone with sense would be afraid of. Rick hauled in his line and saw that his bait was gone. He rebaited his mind on what he already knew of the case. 
I've been wanting to ask you. That answer you gave to Jerry when he asked where Tom Tyler was, you said, inside, surrounded by fools. What did you mean by that? Captain Mike sniffed. Just what I said. If the constable and the rest hadn't been fools, they would have known that Tom Tyler was afraid to talk, just like plenty of others are afraid. Rick pricked up his ears. Others? Captain, I think you know a few things you haven't told us. The old seaman halted his line and grunted when he saw that his bait had been stolen. Reckon we got too many bait stealers down below now. Either you boys hungry? I am, Scotty said promptly. I could eat, Rick admitted. He looked at his watch. It was almost noon. Let's haul anchor and get out of here. In a moment, the hand lines were wound on dryers and the anchor was stowed. At Captain Mike's direction, Rick pointed the launch to the south toward the town. The old man took out his pocket knife, wetted it briefly on the sole of his shoe, and commenced to clean and fillet the fish that they had caught. Scotty slipped into the seat beside Rick. What do you think about trying to sell this one? Rick shrugged. There was nothing he enjoyed as much as a mystery, but he wanted more information from Captain Michael O'Shannon before he decided on anything. He had suspected that the old seaman knew more than he was saying. We'll wait and see what develops, he said. Is that okay with you? Suits me, Scotty agreed. The launch sped past Million Dollar Row, leaving behind a string of fishy waste as Captain Mike went on with his cleaning. By the time they were even with the town, he had a handsome stack of white boneless fillets all ready for the pan. He brought them forward and took a seat next to Scotty. Yes, these'll taste mighty good. Got a little fresh bread and plenty of butter to go with them. Rick pointed to a large barn-like structure on the biggest pier in the front of the town. What's that? Fish market. That's where most of the trawlers load and unload. It's quiet now because the fleet is out. But after dark when they come in, and early in the morning before they leave, it's the busiest place in these parts. I'll take you down there one of these times. Might be we'll find a couple of answers there. He pointed to an old windmill on the shore just below the town. Steer for that. Do you live there? Scotty asked. I live in a shack behind it, but there's a place to tie up. You'll see in a minute. As the captain had said, there was a small dock in front of the windmill. Rick headed the launch for it, and in a short time they were tied up. Behind the mill, which was an old ruin that had been used a half-century before for grinding meal, was the road leading south from Seaford. Across the road was a weather-beaten fisherman's shack. Captain Mike pushed the door open. It ain't no palace, but it's home, and I'm proud to welcome you. Come on in. Inside, Rick stared around him with appreciative surprise. The little shanty was as neat and efficient as a ship's cabin. On one side was a tiny galley with everything neatly stowed. On the other was a built-in bunk. The walls had been papered with old charts, but he saw that most of them were of the New York, New Jersey area. A ship's lantern, wired for electricity, hung so low that it almost brushed Scotty's head. Ship models lined the mantel. Captain Mike was already at work in the galley. With no wasted motion, he produced a coffee pot, 
filled it with water, dumped in a handful of coffee, and put it on the stove. He whisked a match across the seat of his pants and lit the kerosene. Then he produced a paper bag and shook in flour, salt, pepper, and dumped in the fish and closed the bag, shaking it violently a few times with one hand while he produced a frying pan with the other. In a moment, the pan was full of frying fish. A bread box yielded a loaf of homemade bread. Before Rick and Scotty quite realized that lunch was ready, he had them seated at a table that folded down from the wall with a smoking platter of fillets in front of them. Eat, he commanded. Now, Rick was no fish fancier, but he had to admit that this was delicious, and the coffee, in spite of the apparent carelessness with which it was made, was the best he had ever tasted. When the last drop had been consumed, Captain Mike pushed back his chair. All right, then, let's get down to brass tacks. Do you go along with me or not? Rick dropped into the idiom of the sea. I'd like to know the course before I haul anchor, Captain Mike chuckled. Didn't expect caution or wisdom from you. Scotty grinned. Don't worry, he's neither cautious nor wise. He can't wait to get started, and neither can I. But Rick's right. We have to know the whole story. Right. Well, it isn't much. Something's been going on in Seaford. Don't ask me what, because I don't know. I think Tom Tyler does, and I think his winding out is what led to the wreck of the Seabell. He held up his hand as Rick's lips formed a question. You're going to ask me how I know that. Well, I don't. I just suspect it. I was a mite too positive when I said I knew. All I know is Tom Tyler told me one day he had an idea that something strange was going on at Creek House, and he intended to find out what it was. He must have had a good idea that whatever was going on was crooked, because Tom isn't the kind of man to pry into folks' business without a good purpose. Do you think he found out? Rick asked. I do. I think he found out four nights ago. I was sitting in Midori, jigging for eels a little distance down from the creek house fence, right to the mouth of Salt Creek. I saw Tom. He didn't know I saw him. He came around the corner of the fence, and for a minute he was silhouetted against a light. I didn't see his face, I'm sure. Known him since he was a shaver. Next morning I bumped into him at the pier, getting ready to go out on the sea bell. He said to see him at his house that night, because he had something to talk about. Well, I saw him that night, but not at his house. He was sitting at a quarter table in Sab's lobster house. And can you guess who was with him? Red Kelso? Captain Mike nodded at Rick. Yes, he was doing the talking, too, and from the expression on Tom's face, he wasn't saying anything that Tom liked. After a while, he left. I went over to Tom. I asked him in a casual-like way what it was he wanted to talk to me about. He froze up like a clam. He was scared at first. Then he seemed to get sort of mad, too, because he said, I'm going to call his bluff. Just wait and see. Main and Kelso, Scotty said. I reckon, but Tom wouldn't talk. He said it was better I didn't know what he was talking about. He got up and left, and I didn't see him again until last night at City Hall after he wrecked the sea bell. Rick thought it over. The logical deduction was that Tom Tyler had somehow gotten suspicious of the Kelsos and what they were doing at Creek House and had gone spying. 
Kelso found out Tyler had spied on him and had warned him, although Rick couldn't imagine what club he had held over Tyler's head. Tyler had ignored the warning, and somehow Kelso had contrived to wreck the trawler. But how? Was the regular crew aboard the sea bell? he asked. Yes, just the regulars. All good men who have sailed with Tom Tyler for more than ten years. You said Mrs. Tyler was afraid, too, as Clay remembered. Captain Mike shrugged. Probably Tom talked the whole thing over with her. There had been an air of tension at the wreck last night, Rick thought. Maybe other fishermen were in it, too. He put the question to Captain Mike. I don't think so. The whole town knows something is up. They know Tom Tyler doesn't wince in shadows. He's afraid, and they know he is. He's got his reasons. That makes them all uneasy. But there's one gang that I'm sure is mixed up in this, and that's the bunch on the Albatross. She's a fishing craft, just like Tom's, only her skipper isn't much like Tom. Name's Brad Marbeck. Rick stretched his legs. Why do you think he and his crew are mixed up in this? Eel fishing is a good business for them, as once information, Captain Mike said. Rick hit a smile. The old seaman was bursting with curiosity about the creek house and its new inhabitants. He had a picture of him sitting patiently at the mouth of Salt Creek, ostensibly fishing, but actually watching to see what he could find out. I've seen the albatross tied up at Salt Creek Pier three times, the captain went on. Now why would a trawler, loaded to the gunwells, with Manhattan stop at the hotel before coming into the fish wharves to unload? Not for social purposes, that's for certain, Rick said. I doubt why we're a lot closer to a solution, Captain Mike stated. Rick had a germ of an idea. How far out do the trawlers go? A few miles. Fishing grounds start a couple of miles out. Why? Just an idea. Scotty's eyes met Rick's. You thinking about going out to take a look? Could be. What time do they leave here? What time do they get back? They leave about four in the morning at this time of year. Mostly they don't get back until around nine. They like to get to the grounds by daylight and fish until dark. If they get a full load before dark, of course, they come in earlier. Rick grinned at Scotty. Ever wanted to be a reporter? Nope, my spelling isn't that good. Well, you're going to be one. Let's get home. I want to make a call to the Whiteside Morning Record. Captain Mike's eyes brightened. So you'll work along with me then, hey? I knew you would. What happens now? First thing is to interview Captain Tyler and his crew, Rick said. Captain Mike shook his head. Don't bother. You'd be wasting your time. I've already tried. Tom's not saying a word even to his old friends, and the crew has orders from him not to talk. They're loyal. You'll get nothing out of them. All right, Rick said disappointed. If the fishermen wouldn't talk to Captain Mike, they certainly wouldn't talk to him and Scotty. Then we'll go back to Spindrift and do a couple of chores. We'll come back to the Seaford tonight. I'd like to get a look at this albatross, if you can fix it. That's easy. Captain Mike rubbed his hands together gleefully. I'm betting we could get Tom Tyler out of this. Rick scratched his head thoughtfully. Don't get your hopes up too high, Captain Mike. We're only a couple of amateurs, remember? Some amateurs are better than some professionals, no matter what the business. 
I'm not worried anymore. Captain Mike walked down to the boat landing in front of the old windmill with them. How will you come down tonight? I'll try to borrow a car, Rick said. Do you think Jerry will lend us his, Scotty? If he's not using it, if he is, maybe we can borrow Gus's. Scotty walked to the stern of the launch and untied the line that held it to the pier. Rick loosed the bow line, then jumped into the pilot seat. As he did so, he sat on a sheet of paper. He had left no paper on the seat. He rescued it and turned it over. There was a message on the back, printed in pencil in huge block letters. Its content sent a sudden shiver through him. He beckoned to Scotty and handed it to him. Looks like somebody can read enough to get our home port off the stern of the launch. Scotty scanned it rapidly, then whistled softly. For Captain Mike's benefit, he read it out loud. Keep out of this, keep out of Seaford, and stay away from Shannon. Stay at Smindrift where you belong. You'll get hurt if you don't. Scotty's face took on an injured expression. To read that, you think we weren't even wanted here. 